Well, what causes you the greatest fear? According to Wall Street's Fear Index, extreme fear is still driving the market post-COVID-19, but it's not COVID that's bringing the fear, is it? It's the state of the world in general. With Russia at war with Ukraine, China floating balloons over Montana, and the Canadian wildfires affecting American air quality. So literally everyone's checking the news 24-7 for their next jolt of insecurity. But the question is, what are you most afraid of? Many are terrified we're on the brink of war. Some afraid of declining health. Others afraid of losing their job or worse, losing their own personal freedom. But here's the key. Whatever you fear the most tells you, informs you what you worship the most. So the first test of whether we're actually worshiping the right God, the God of the Bible, is actually fear. Michael Horton says, while being afraid of all sorts of things is a sign of sanity these days, the fear of God seems quite insane, not only to unbelieving neighbors, but even to the church. So it's not surprising that the God of the Bible is increasingly rejected in wider American society, since even in evangelical circles, he is frequently reduced to a supporting actor in our life's movie, a means to an end for our own health and wealth and happiness. He says, in ordinary conversation, we express fear over just about any threat to our well-being, but meet stares and raised eyebrows if we even mention the idea of fearing God. Now, just think about that. We worship most what we fear most. So for some, the fear of air quality dominates them. Now, of course, they don't worship the air we breathe, but their health. Others are terrified of war. Now, they don't worship violence, but safety security, and comfort, and certainly the freedom to do whatever they want, whenever they want. And if God can help with that, that's totally great. But if he can't, then we don't really need him, do we? Therefore, Horton says, for many, Jesus has become little more than a mascot for their own personal wants and desires, rather than the mediator of a new covenant, apart from which we must face God as an all-consuming fire. Hebrews 12, 29. So again, what are you most afraid of? And are you certain it's the right thing? Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God, who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So we must fear God the most, because we worship God 
the most, who is certainly worthy of our worship. But that worship, that response, starts with an awe and wonder for who God is and what God's accomplished in and through the Lord Jesus, and certainly includes gratefulness and praise and a life that is totally devoted to Him. And I can't think of a better passage in all the Bible to highlight that reality than Hebrews chapter 12. So if you would, go ahead and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. It's on page 1009 if you're using one of the Bibles in the chairs in front of you. My outline is on the yellow sheet. Title, Unshakable Kingdom. Three points, the comparison, the warning, and the response. And as you're turning, let me just quickly set the context. Because the author of Hebrews has argued for nine chapters, nine chapters, that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels. He's better than Moses. He's the better high priest who offers a better sacrifice to establish a better covenant. So across the board, Jesus is better. Therefore, we must run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, which is the fight of faith, especially when life gets hard to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. So the author exhorts us to lift our drooping hands, strengthen our weak knees, make straight paths for our feet. And he exhorts us to run, run with endurance the race set before us. But what's the motivation? What inspires us? Well, it's the finish line. But we're not striving for some earthly destination, but a heavenly city and a glorious festal gathering where every believer in Christ will worship Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So that is the context. Follow along as I read Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. The author says, For you have not come, you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Verse 24, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So two things I want you to notice right off the bat. The first is that there's clearly a comparison going on here between two mountains. So Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. Verse 18 says, for you have not come to what may be touched. That's Mount Sinai. Then verse 22 says, but you have come to Mount Zion. So look at 18 and 22 together. You have not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion. So there's a comparison that is going on here. 
But the comparison is for a reason, right? That's why verse 18 starts with the word for or because. So these verses provide the reason why Christians can lift their drooping hands, strengthen their weak knees, and run with endurance the race that is set before them. Because they've got this glorious finish line right in front of them. And the finish line has a name. It's called Mount Zion, which is absolutely fantastic. But that has to be seen in comparison to A, the terror of Mount Sinai. In verse 18 says, For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. So the author is essentially saying, remember Exodus 19. Because Mount Sinai was the mountain Moses climbed to receive God's law. So he served as the mediator, kept running up and down the mountain, if you remember, speaking to God, then speaking to the people. Including God saying, warn the people lest they break through, touch the mountain, and many of them perish. But it was an absolutely terrifying reality when God descended on that physical mountain. I mean, can you even imagine what that must have been like? To be standing there when that happened. Exodus 19, you have this laundry list. Anything and everything that you're afraid of in this world is listed there, all piled on top of one another, including thunders and lightnings. It doesn't say thunder and lightning. It says thunders, plural, and lightnings, plural. And there was darkness, smoke, fire, and the whole earth is shaking. The mountain trembled. Lightning tells us that it was bright and flashing, and yet there's this cloud so thick that you can feel it, and God is descending, and there's fire, and there's smoke, and it's billowing up, so God's revealing himself, and yet he's shrouding himself. You see him, but you can't see him clearly. So there's a mystery to his majesty. And can you even imagine the volume? Thunders lightnings, the earth shaking. And there was this horn that was blasting. But the volume only got louder and louder as God came closer and closer. Just picture yourself standing there to see God descending on Mount Sinai Feel what that must have been like. Absolutely awesome, yet terrifying. God descending on Mount Sinai. So totally understandable that as the mountain trembled, the people trembled, and even Moses trembled because they were terrified. So the people pleaded with Moses that God not speak to them directly, but only through Moses. And just for clarity, what were they afraid of? They were afraid of dying, right? 
I mean, that's the point of the beast touching the mountain, verse 20. But even if a thoughtless animal crosses the threshold, it will surely die. Because God is a holy God. God is an all-consuming fire. He is not to be trifled with. So what's the point? It's to remind these Jewish Christians that apart from the Lord Jesus, God is absolutely unapproachable. I mean, Mount Sinai was so charged, so saturated with the holiness of God on full display in the physical signs. Lightning, thunder, darkness, smoke, fire, and the whole earth shaking. That for man to even touch the mountain, cross the threshold, meant the certainty of death and destruction. But that's all that Moses and the Old Covenant could accomplish. Because all the law could do was show you your sin. And cause you to stand in reverent fear before this awesome, terrifying, holy, and all-consuming God. Now bring all of that imagery, the terror of Mount Sinai to the contrast of be the glory of Mount Zion. I want you to feel the contrast. Because the author says, verse 18, for you have not come to Mount Sinai, but verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion. Look at the description. In contrast, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want you to glory in that contrast. Because the author paints this terrifying picture of Mount Sinai in order to see the glory, the splendor, the grace and mercy, and the beauty of the new covenant, which enables you to live in God's presence where there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Because Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And Jesus has fulfilled all of the law's demands. So Jesus didn't nullify or ignore Mount Sinai. No, he fulfilled it. He perfectly obeyed the law, both in his life, sinless in every way, and in his death, cursed is everyone who dies on a tree. So because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It speaks redemption and salvation rather than vengeance. So Sinai is fulfilled, and Zion is available. And look at the glory of Mount Zion. There's six things listed here that are absolutely incredible, promised to everyone who believes in Jesus. Starting with number one, the author says, but you have come, you have come to the city of the living God. Now what's incredible is that's already happened. Look at it. It says, you have come. You have already come. 
to the city of the living God. So if you believe in Jesus, you're already there. Meaning it's as good as done. And yet, as I'm sure you feel like I do, you're obviously not there yet, are you? Yet It's not yet done. So you still need to run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus and looking forward to this city, the city of the living God. So there's this tension in the Bible, isn't there? This already true and yet not complete tension. And you feel it all the way through the Bible, right? We're told that I'm a citizen of heaven already, that I'm raised with Christ already, that I'm seated with Christ in the heavenly places already. And yet I'm not yet there. So the kingdom of God is already at hand, Jesus says, Mark chapter 1, verse 15, but it's not yet consummated. So we've come to the city of the living God, Hebrews 12, 22, but we're also still seeking the city yet to come, Hebrews 13, 14. Already? And yet, not yet. And I just want you to embrace that tension and glory in the certainty of God's promises that it's true you've already come to Mount Zion and yet you're not yet there but it's as good as done the promise is that certain so keep running run with endurance the race set before you until you're finally and fully there but verses 22 to 24 tell us what there looks like, right? It tells us what the finish line looks like. And it's radically different than Mount Sinai. At Sinai, God was totally unapproachable. But at Zion, there's mercy and there's grace and there's a city, God's city, the city of the living God. And you are more than welcome to come. Come to Mount Zion. No longer terror and trembling but joy and rejoicing. That's the difference that Jesus makes. That by faith in Christ, we have complete and total access to God. And be clear, God has not changed at all. He's still a holy God. He's awesome in power, authority, glory, and majesty. He's a God not to be trifled with. But now, the people of God, those who believe in Jesus, are welcome. We come, total access to the God. And it's not just a city, is it? Look really close. It is not just a city. Some of you people don't even like cities. And you're like, well, city, okay. It's not just a city, is it? It's a party. This is a party. You have come to innumerable angels doing what? Festal gathering. That's my new phrase. Favorite phrase. Festal gathering. What are you doing today? Festal gathering. That's what I'm doing. How awesome is that? I mean, here's a picture that you can't possibly imagine. God's city is filled with countless angels, thousands of angels, and they've been helping the whole time. Hebrews 1.14 says angels were sent out to serve those who are to inherit salvation. 
They've been working the whole time. But now we've finally arrived. We've made it. We're all there. We've inherited the salvation prepared for us before the foundation of the world. Which means what? It's party time. That's what it means. A festal gathering. And all the angels. Tens of thousands of angels. They're all there. Why are they there? To help us celebrate. Just for clarity, who's the us? He tells us it's number three. The assembly of the firstborn. You need to understand the firstborn, according to Jewish tradition, always received a double portion of the inheritance. So clearly the firstborn were the favored They were the favored ones, focused on. They were the apple of their father's eye. But now in God's city and God's family, every single believer is viewed as God's beloved firstborn child. We're all the firstborn. And we're all going to receive a double portion of the inheritance. We're all sons and daughters of the Most High King, who is described here as number four, the judge of all creation. So we've come to God, the judge of all. So yes, there's clearly a party, right? It is a festal gathering. But that doesn't mean it's a casual event that we should take lightly. Absolutely not. Hebrews 4.13 told us that no creature is hidden from God's sight, but instead all stand naked and exposed before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Hebrews 10.30 said the Lord will judge his people. So it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So it's a party. Yes. But we must come with awe and reverence. We must come with fear and trembling because God will judge every man, woman, and child. But praise God that in Christ that judgment has been fully satisfied. But God is still the judge. So there must be awe and reverence and an appropriate, reverent fear of him. Because what you fear the most, you will certainly worship the most. And God is worthy of our worship. Because he will one day make all things right. In fact, he will make all things perfect. For you have come, number five, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. So these are all those who have already believed in Jesus, but who have not yet received their resurrected bodies. So they're there in spirit, but they're still waiting. Now, isn't that incredible that even though they died thousands of years ago, they're all gathered together, but they're still waiting. Why are they waiting? Hebrews 11.40 tells us that apart from us, they should not yet be made perfect. So apart from us, they're not yet complete. So yes, they're forgiven of their sins, and yes, they're reconciled to God, and yes, they're welcomed into Mount Zion already, but we're not yet there. So they wait, right? This is the picture that we were given. They, they line the end of the finish line until we arrive So until then, they're waiting all together in Mount Sinai until we arrive, until we're all there together, until we're all 
complete, perfect, sanctified, redeemed, not a single one absent. Oh, how glorious will that day be when we all receive our resurrected bodies in the new heavens and the new earth and all the saints from all the years are all together in the presence of their Savior worshiping His holy name. Because what makes all of this so glorious is Jesus. Notice how the list crescendos with Jesus. And of course it does. Because we're running with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate finish line, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who is the mediator of the new covenant in his blood that speaks a far better word than the blood of Abel. Because Abel's blood cried out for vengeance. But Jesus' blood offers the forgiveness of sins. And the hope of eternal life, that God's wrath is fully and finally satisfied in and through his death, burial, and his resurrection. And notice how Jesus is still speaking. Because the forgiveness of sins and the hope of eternal life is still available to all who come. Just like Jesus said, Matthew eleven twenty eight. Jesus says, come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your souls. You see, that's the glory of the comparison. Because Mount Sinai could never atone for your sin. Mount Sinai could never, ever provide rest for your soul. Because sinful priests offering the blood of bulls and goats could never satisfy God's wrath. But Jesus is the better priest who offers a better sacrifice, who mediates a better covenant. In fact, the whole point of the letter is to assure these dear believers that their sins are forgiven and there's nowhere else that they need to go to be reconciled to God or perfected for all time than to Jesus He's the perfect, sinless, eternal high priest who offered himself as a single sacrifice once for all to atone for the sins and to perfect believers for all time. Which is confirmed because he sat down at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, where he ever lives to intercede on our behalf and where he is waiting patiently to make all things right in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will one day reign. But that offer is still available, right? Access to Mount Zion is still open. Invitations to this party are still being sent out. There's a festal gathering happening and you should come, right? All of that is still available to you. Because Christ has not yet returned. So let me just ask, why wouldn't you come? Why wouldn't you come? Do you have a better offer for eternity? Oh, I plead with you to come. And why wouldn't you want to run? 
Why would you not want to run with endurance the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus, even if that race requires trials and tribulations, pain and suffering, cancer and broken relationships, even persecution and death, if necessary? If you know for certain that all of this is at the finish line, waiting for you. Because that's exactly what verses 22 to 24 represent. They represent the finish line. This is what it looks like. The city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, the festal gathering with all the saints and all the angels all gathered together in God's presence and Jesus. Oh, I appeal to you. Look to Jesus so that you keep running. And listen to Jesus, who's calling you right now. He's calling and pleading for you to come. He's appealing to you to stop running the race that you're currently on that leads to death and destruction and to start running the race of faith. Because Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. Because Jesus is the only way of salvation. Because Jesus is the only way to be redeemed, restored, reconciled, and made perfect before a holy God. But you have to hear him calling. And you have to respond. You have to repent and believe in Jesus. Otherwise, you won't be welcomed into the city of God with the people of God to worship the Son of God, our great and glorious Savior, Jesus. Which is why the glory of Mount Zion is immediately followed by number two, the warning. The warning to not refuse Jesus who is still calling you by name. If you would, follow along as I read verses 25 to 27. The author says, See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, him who is calling. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Now notice the command, verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. So who's doing the speaking? Well, it's obviously Jesus' blood from verse 24 because Jesus' blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. So God is a speaking God. In fact, that's how Hebrews started, right? Chapter 1, verse 1, that God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways, but in these last days, he's spoken. How has he spoken in these last days? In his 
Son. So God is speaking through Jesus' blood, and he's calling sinners to repent and believe. Because Jesus' blood is the only way for sinners to be reconciled to a holy God. So here's the command. Do not reject him who is speaking. In other words, do not reject this glorious offer of salvation. Do not reject the only way to be redeemed, restored, reconciled, and made perfect before a holy God. And what's B? The reason to not reject Jesus. Well, it's the judgment that's coming. Right? Because he's arguing from lesser to greater. So the lesser judgment of Mount Sinai to the greater judgment of Mount Zion. Again, look at verse 25. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, looking backwards, his voice shook the earth. So when God spoke to the nation of Israel at Mount Sinai, his voice literally shook the mountain. But do you remember how the people responded? Essentially, they refused to listen. Exodus 20:18 tells us that when the people saw the thunder and the lightning, the trumpets and the mountain smoking, they were afraid. And they trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us, and we will listen to you, Moses. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. And of course, that was representative of their entire attitude towards God. Because they continued to refuse to listen, repeatedly disobeying him over the course of 40 years as they wandered aimlessly through the wilderness. Now, how did that go for them? Not well, right? In fact, Numbers 14.29 says that so grievous was their disobedience that God pronounced judgment on every single one of them that was 20 years old and younger, that they should surely die in the desert. Now, in order to grab a hold of that comparison from lesser to greater, because this is the lesser, you need to think about that reality. Remember what happened. Approximately 2 million people left Egypt in the Exodus. And in Numbers 14, 29, God declares that all of them will surely die as a result of their disobedience, rejecting God's voice. Well, what does that mean then? Well, it means that millions of bodies littered the desert from Egypt to Canaan. They just died. They never made it to the promised land. Two million people. In fact, none but Caleb and Joshua escaped because none but Caleb and Joshua did what? Listened to God's voice. So if you refuse to listen, then you will not escape the judgment. And if that's the judgment on earth, Mount Sinai, then how much greater will the judgment from heaven be? Mount Zion. 
surely none will escape the final judgment, which will only be greater and will only be more horrific. In fact, that's the whole point of this shaking language. Verse 26 says, At that time his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but I will shake the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal. Look at this, the removal of things that are shaken. That is, things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. What's he talking about? Well, he's quoting the prophet Haggai. And the truth is, he's bringing in that entire context, because if you understand Haggai, the nation of Israel was back in Jerusalem rebuilding the temple, and the people were faithfully laboring, and yet the people were totally discouraged. Why were they totally discouraged? Because the glory of the temple wasn't anywhere close to the glory of the temple in the days of Solomon. So God speaks to the people, and he says to them, be strong and persevere. For I am with you, so be not afraid, for yet once more I will shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will destroy the kingdoms of the earth. There's your judgment language. But Haggai, God also says this, and I will fill this temple with a glory that is greater than the former glory, and this place with peace. So the author of Hebrews is grabbing all of that and he's declaring there's a future final judgment that is still coming when Christ shall return and all the earth will be destroyed and all his enemies will be placed under his feet. So this is a warning of that future judgment that not a single person will escape. So every man, woman, and child, dead and alive, will stand before the judgment seat of Christ because not one thing will be left unshaken. But you also have to see this will be an absolutely wonderful event for all those who believe in Christ. Because along with that horrible judgment, there will also be a greater glory that has never been seen before in the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness will reign. So be warned. Judgment is coming. And be wise that you do not refuse the one who is still speaking, who's still calling you to come. Come to Mount Zion, the new Jerusalem, the eternal city, and your heavenly home. Hear his voice and respond. Because this judgment is going to be horrific. It will be awesome and glorious. But for some, it will be horrific. It is the all-encompassing final judgment. I'm going to just pause here to make sure that you understand and connect what he's saying. So I'm going to try to put it in perspective for you. Because Genesis 1 is super clear, isn't it? Just think back with me, Genesis 1. Genesis 1 is really, really clear, right? The earth was formless and void until what happened? Until God started speaking. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. What did God say? Let there be 
light. And there was light. He spoke, and it came into being. Then verse 6, let there be land. And there was land. Let there be oceans. Let there be trees. Let there be vegetation, animals, birds, and fish. There were oceans and trees, vegetation, animals, birds, and fish. Verse 16, God said, let there be the sun, the moon, and the stars. God spoke, and all these things came into being, including galaxies, the Milky Way, millions and trillions of stars. But now Hebrews is saying, God will indeed speak again. And all the galaxies and all the stars and all the trees, the vegetation, the animals, the birds, and the fish, so all that was created will hear his word. And they will literally shake out of existence. Just think about that. One word, and it's all gone. Verse 27, that's what it says. Look at verse 27. The author says, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken. That is, here's the clarification, all things that have been made will be removed, they'll be destroyed. They'll be eliminated in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. What are the things that cannot be shaken and will remain? Well, they're everything listed in verses 22 to 24. So the people of God remain. They survive. They inhabit the city of the living God and the unshakable kingdom yet to come. But everything else is shaken, it's, it's burned up, and it is judged, including anyone who continues to refuse God who is still speaking. Let me ask you again. Are you still refusing to listen? Because Jesus' blood is still speaking. It's still calling you, pleading with you to repent and believe in the only one who can save you from your sin. But you have to respond. Otherwise, this is the warning. Final judgment is coming for you. But I also want to say, that judgment is glorious news for those who listen and obey God's word. Because that judgment ushers in the unshakable kingdom where there will be no more sin or death or destruction. Revelation 21 says, God will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Revelation 21 tells us because all those things have passed away, they're gone. The coming judgment will be horrible for those who reject Christ, but it will be glorious for all those who believe in Christ. 
And I'm just telling you, for all those who heed God's voice, this is great news. Because God will make all things right. And Mount Zion is going to be awesome. Incredible. Dwelling in God's presence, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore. Did I say it's a festal gathering? It's going to be incredible. Innumerable angels and the people of God worshiping Jesus. Here's the question. How do we prepare for it? Meaning, what do we do between now and then? Well, the author tells us in verses 28 and 29. This is number three, the response. He says, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Now, I want you to remember where I started this morning, talking about fear and worship and asking the question, what do you fear the most? And are you sure that it's the right thing? Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, do not fear those who can kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear God who can destroy both soul and body in hell. God is the one that we must fear the most because God is the one that we must worship the most. But that worship, that response starts with awe and wonder for who God is and what God's accomplished in and through the Lord Jesus. But when we get that, meaning when we embrace the God of the Bible rather than the God of our own imaginations, the natural result, when you rightly understand him, is awe and wonder. And an overwhelming gratefulness for all that he's accomplished in and through his son, the Lord Jesus. And the fact that we can be reconciled to him and that he's preparing. God who created is preparing a place for us that he describes as an unshakable kingdom. I mean, what's that going to be like? Where we will dwell in his presence for all eternity. How else could you possibly respond other than gratefulness and praise? Because you're not getting what you know your sins deserve. But instead, you're forgiven. You're accepted. And you're welcomed into his presence. You don't receive judgment and wrath. You receive grace and mercy. I mean, my goodness, the God who speaks all things into existence and the God who speaks all things out of existence is preparing a party. A festal gathering. Why wouldn't you want to be there? All his people are going to be there. Not a single person is not going to be there that should be there. I don't, I don't, I don't know how else you could respond. The God of the universe is preparing a party. And, and, and you're on the list. Hey, there's my name. I'm welcome to come. And you're not just welcome. You're a firstborn son. A firstborn daughter. I have no idea how that's going to work. But he treasures you. Above all else. And yet he treasures your brother and sister above all else. 
It's like when you have little kids and you say, what was your favorite part of the day? And they list like 10 things. <laughs> you know, like, well, favorite by definition means one above the others. But we're, we're all the firstborn sons and daughters. How else could you respond besides gratefulness and praise? But it's not just gratefulness, is it? He's clear. It's also worship. It's awe and wonder and a life that is totally dedicated and devoted to God, which is totally appropriate. I mean, how else could you ever repay God for all that he's done for you in the Lord Jesus? Right? He, he calls us to run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. So how must we run? We must run for all we're worth. We must run with all that we have. We must run with all our might. You know, Jonathan Edwards, when he was a student at Yale, wrote 70 resolutions to motivate him to run the race of faith with endurance. And in such a way that he might win the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And one of them captures this spirit. He says, resolved to live with all my might while I still live. Which is really just the practical outworking of the two great commandments. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength. And to love your neighbor as yourself. But to do it with all your might. With all that you have. So strive, labor, abound, excel, and be zealous to run with endurance, laying aside every weight, every sin. So being totally committed and done with half-heartedness, done with laziness, done with being lukewarm about the things of God, but being crystal clear that Christ laid hold of you for this very purpose, that you might worship him rightly, fully, wholeheartedly, and finally, that there would be no competing affections. That's what he's saying, to worship him rightly, Fully, finally, be done once and for all with lesser things. There's no half-hearted worship that could ever be acceptable. There's no half-hearted obedience that could ever be appropriate. But instead, being all in when it comes to the things of God. I, I, I think some of you think I'm extreme. And I would just say, when I read Hebrews 12, I think I'm just being biblical. I, I, I just, I think this is what he's asking for. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. All in. I don't have one hand in my pocket. I'm not protecting one area of my life. There's not a thing, single thing that I'm holding back. I love the old hymn. Take my life and let it be. Always, only, all for thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. Take my voice and let me sing always only for my king. 
Take my silver and my gold. Not a mite would I withhold. Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. Take myself and I will be ever only all for thee. I pray that would be true of us. Then in light of all that God has done for us in Jesus, that we would respond in gratefulness and praise and lives that are wholeheartedly devoted to him, running with endurance the race that is set before us with Jesus as the finish line and this unshakable kingdom and this festal gathering. Allow me to pray to that end. Lord, we recognize there's much work to be done in our hearts. We are so prone to be distracted by so many other things. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of your word. I pray that you would help us to be people who love the book of Hebrews and read it and meditate on it and picture in our mind's eye daydreaming about that day when you will speak and all that was created will shake away and you will establish this unshakable kingdom. Lord, I pray that you would work in our hearts, that we would long for that day to be in your presence, to be with the Lord Jesus, fullness of joy, pleasures forevermore with God and the people of God and these innumerable angels. Lord, I pray that that would impact our minds and in our hearts and it would be the motivation that we need before we ever get out of bed in the morning to run with all our might. Lord, do that good work for our good and for your eternal glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.